Well, as we wrap up book one of the Psalms, Psalm 41, um, let us hear his word with thanksgiving and let us uh, look forward to the fruit that he'll bring by the power of his word. Stand now, if you would, as we read Psalm 41. To the choir master, a Psalm of David. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say to me in malice, When will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say, A deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his hill against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up, that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. But you have upheld me because of my iniquity and my integrity and has set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, We thank you for these songs. We thank you, Father, that we get to consider these words in light of what Jesus has said and what Jesus has done and what Jesus is doing throughout the world and in us and through us. We are so thankful to sing these songs. May you receive glory this day and every day forevermore as these words are sung. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This is the close of book one of five books of the Psalms. And... Some people have called the particular book, Psalm 1, I mean, excuse me, book 1, as the Psalms of God being beside us. It's really difficult, I think, to, to dissect them up sometimes that way. They're so, they're, many times they're very similar, but they do have themes and, and different breakouts here and there that do highlight that more and more. And here, as we consider this particular psalm, it's a very encouraging psalm. It's considered to be a psalm of thanksgiving, 
But it's a peculiar psalm in how it is structured and what it is focusing on. It seems that this particular psalm is broken up with three primary thoughts. You have the consideration of the poor. You have God sustaining us with his love by delivering us, protecting us, and keeping us alive. And then there is this interesting highlighting of betrayal and the sins of the tongue. And it's all interwoven there. It's probably most peculiar to have the part about the betrayal and the sins of the tongue of those who are betraying him in the midst of proclaiming thanksgiving to God for him sustaining us then with a proverbial beginning titling it all blessed be the one who considers the poor it took me a while and then all of a sudden it overflowed it's like many of the preparations for preaching the psalms i first read them and and try to respond right from the the get-go of what it might be focusing on the most i try to dissect it up and then i start tapping in to each of the words and then all of a sudden it's overflowing like some kind of major crack in a major high pressured line it's just flowing out everywhere and it becomes wonderful um, I we read it this morning at the table and I could almost hardly contain myself as just hearing the words read and then thinking about each one again after walking through this if you have not Um, as you should, and I admonish you and encourage you to do, study the chapter or the passage before we come together on the Lord's Day. I pray that you would prayerfully meditate. And as we go into Acts, that you would prayerfully meditate on what you know the next reading is going to be. You're missing out if you come in cold or removed from not taking the time in preparation beforehand. God's word is so full of mercy and grace, so full of food and strength, full of admonishment and discipline, both the rod and staff being clearly before us. And I pray that if you have not on this particular psalm, that you would go back and dwell on it. It seems simple. Like I said, it seems almost proverbial in the beginning as you look at what it says, blessed is the one who considers the poor. A lot of times being in the society that we are, in the Christian society that we are, we know that the Lord is merciful to the poor, that he has a tremendous heart of protection and deliverance for the poor. And we can easily allow the things that are in our past or in our mind or there are things that are being proclaimed about benevolence and care to the poor to quickly fill into the gaps of our thinking as we read a psalm like this. But I really think that it's important that when we read this psalm, we try to take on as much of the context of what it has, but also to consider the great delight that we have that there are words in this psalm that Jesus spoke This psalm, the passages that are parallel, that I think that it would be good for you to study along, if you have not already, is to go to John 12 and 13 and to read those two chapters. I'm not going to go through the fullness of those chapters. And you will find where Jesus quotes 
a part of this particular psalm. But as you look at the account of John 12 and 13, you'll also see Jesus referring to Deuteronomy 15. And I believe it is there as Jesus is responding to Judas in John 12, where you would get the best context of understanding what might be on the mind of David and was obviously on the mind of Jesus when considering this particular psalm. Because I believe in this society and age today in the church that there is a broad definition of what it means to be poor. And because that definition is so broad, it allows us to overly generalize, I think, the condition that David is speaking of when he talks about poor. Now, throughout all the Psalms, wherever it says poor and needy, it's actually a Hebrew phrase that is combined together. And it is not like how I may feel throughout my life when I'm driving a beater or whenever I can't buy something that I feel like that I could use. The poor and needy that is being referred to here in this passage and in most all of the passages throughout the psalm is really a place of desperation, a place where there is a hopelessness that every system and structure that you could possibly hold on to is no longer there, that you do not have family, you do not have work and provision through work that can provide and help you in your time of poor and neediness, that you are totally dependent on someone or something to come into your life and rescue you and deliver you. In most cases, if you look throughout the scriptures, those who are in this condition of being poor and needy tend to have to resort to being some kind of slave or bondservant. And however, masters or those who have that role of responsibility care for those particular people have tremendous ramifications upon what God is going, how God is going to respond to them. So when you see here where David says, blessed is the one who considers the poor, he's very much thinking in mind of his own life, of how he has treated those in his own community, within his own kingdom, within his own reach, how he has treated them. And he has considered their frame, considered their plight, considered their neediness. And in this particular instance, I believe that David is realizing that the Lord is going to be merciful to him because he has shown mercy. But it's not just some kind of legalistic response of if I do this, then God is going to bless me. Is that we see very clearly within just a few verses that David is thinking something far greater than just monetary need or hunger. When he finishes that first section, he now says, as for me, Lord, 
or as for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me and heal me, for I have sinned against you. He knows that ultimately, that when God is displaying the poor before us, those who are truly destitute and without any hope, and when he calls us to show mercy and kindness to the poor, that there is something being taught and something being brought to us that is not just an indication of how to respond to those who are in physical need. It is a proclamation of the gospel. It is a proclamation of the gospel of highlighting how we are all ultimately in our sin, poor and needy. If we do not understand the context in this manner, we have the ability to compartmentalize and sexualize and minimalize the understanding of just how much neediness we have. If we are one who is thinking, well, I am poor because I'm driving a beater, or I am poor because I cannot afford college, or I'm poor because my clothes are old and ratty, but in many other respects, we are not really without. We have those surrounding us that can help us and provide for us. And many times in this particular age and being an American, where we have so many riches, we can quickly define poor in really ridiculous ways that most of mankind has never imagined. We also see our sin in the same way. We can say, oh yeah, I'm a sinner. I've got a little bit of bad over here and a little bit of bad over here, a little bit of weakness over here, but I got these good things going for me. I'm good about this. I'm really great about this. We can see that we're not in a posture or a position of true neediness, true emptiness, true hopelessness in of ourselves. So it is imperative that we understand really the poor of that age. And still we have, even throughout the world, circumstances like this, but we almost have to be removed from our own personal history and blessings to get a feel for what it is to be totally without any hope apart from being cared for, rescued, and sustained by someone else. David saw that, and David knew that. And David knew the heart of God by the proclamations of what he had said on how to posture ourselves, how to live out the responsibilities of our lives toward those within our reach that were in those circumstances. And so he sees parallel very immediately. It says, in the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. That is what the Lord does for us. It is right there, again, a proclamation of the gospel. He delivers us. He will deliver us again and again but he ultimately delivers us because of our poor and neediness. He delivers us from our captivity to sin. He delivers us from the judgment of sin. 
He protects us. Just as Jonathan mentioned in Psalm 23, he is protecting us from the things outside and the things within our own hearts. He is there to protect us and he keeps us alive. He sustains us. He sanctifies us. He feeds us to make us those who will proclaim his name. And we will proclaim the goodness of the Lord and be considered blessed in the land. And then there is the guarantee that he will not give us over to the enemies. There are crisscrossing and overlying images being shown here. We have the poor. We have David who is obviously in this particular moment dealing with sickness. Seeing that his body is limited. That he is being in this moment unable to have the strength to sustain himself. That he is dependent on the Lord to give him strength. And then we know with clarity that he is not just talking about his body, he is talking about his soul. And so I think we can see pretty easily those kind of parallels. We can see that the Lord does those things for us. We can see the imagery that he is playing out for us. But what I found so much most curious about this was the time that was spent on focusing on the enemy's words. What the enemy was saying to David, what the enemy says to us when we're in the middle of this plight, when we're in the middle of reception of the Lord's blessing. In many ways, this is a psalm of lament as it is a psalm of thanksgiving because we're right in the middle of this plight of seeing the Lord give David blessing by sustaining him and building him up. But then there is this, really this more painful battle than even the neediness of the body. There is this neediness of encouragement, a neediness of hope that the enemies are surrounding him even in the middle of his sickness. And when they come to even give him comfort, there's deception in their words. It says, my enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When, we, when he goes out, he tells it abroad. I asked Jennifer when... Um, I was studying this, I said, when you think about the admonition that we get to care for the poor, what other sin do you think is often sistered up with that? You know, and, and we were just talking briefly about it, and you, often you would hear admonitions in the word about maybe our lack of contentment, or maybe there'd be some kind of admonition about what we're doing with our wealth. But I have to admit to you, I hadn't thought about that parallel to this call to show mercy to the poor is this admonition to guard our mouth, to guard our tongues. And it was very peculiar to me as I was 
trying to reconcile everything here in this particular psalm. Excuse me a moment. What this all could mean. So I kept digging, went a little further, and so I thought, well, the best thing to do is to go to where Jesus quotes a part of this psalm. And you go to that particular part, which is where, if you look there in verse 9, it says, Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his hill against me. Who is Jesus speaking of? And Jim, you can't answer that question because you answered it this morning. Who is Jesus speaking of when he quotes it in John 13? What's that? Judas. So we have here a reference, a reverse reference, because Jesus says it later on from the time that David is saying it. So we're drawn because we are now in this age where the word is complete and we can go and we can see the words of Jesus. We see that he is quoting Psalm 41 and we are seeing that he is quoting it in the very middle of working along with the disciples about being a servant. What was Jesus doing in John 13 when he speaks this? What did he just do? Anybody recall? He washed the feet of the disciples. My mouth is really dry. And so Jesus is teaching the disciples about being a servant and washing the feet of the by washing the feet of the disciples, showing what he is to the disciples, and he tells them that the servant is not greater than the master, telling them that you must do this also, that you must wash one another's feet. And as this is going on, Judas is there. And he has already mentioned once before that there is going to be betrayal. And he's highlighting it once again. Judas is right there. And he's talking about the upcoming death that he's going to have to face. But he's also talking about a close one, a friend, who is going to betray him. Now, at first, I was like, I still still don't see it all. But then I had to go and read more of the context. And then so I go all the way to the beginning of John 12. And in the beginning of John 12, we have the dinner that was being put together by Mary and Martha. And then we, and Lazarus was also there. This is post-first resurrection for Lazarus. We've talked about this not too long ago. And while they're there in this particular account... Mary breaks open a bottle of ointment and pours it on Jesus. Do you recall how the response was by some others that were in the room with them? They said, it says in different accounts, and in some places it says the disciples said, and in another account it says they said, but in John 12, it says, Judas's, Judas says, we could have sold that ointment, this very expensive perfume, and we could have given the money to the poor. And then Jesus responds to that 
with, she is holding on to it or has held on to it to prepare for my burial, for my death. Mary is focused on the cross. You will always have the poor with you, which is a quote to Deuteronomy 15, the law of God concerning how to treat slaves, how to treat the most needy, the most poor, and destitute in the land. And so I started thinking, I think I'm seeing this. It's coming together a little bit more now. So there is this contrast we have there in the Psalms. Though David, you know, he's thinking about his circumstance and he's not necessarily got any clue to how all this is going to come out. He's thinking about his circumstance as a king and as a master of slaves. He's thinking about him, his situation as being sick. And then he has these friends who are whispering about him, who are plotting against him. And so he's coming up with this Psalm based upon really focusing on the goodness of the Lord with a long-term hope of salvation from his sins. He does have that, but that's about the gist of it. But with Jesus, he is pulling it all together and along with everything that David is saying, and he is highlighting that here we have the, the full narrative being played out, leading up to the cross, that this is a circumstance that is really between Jesus and Judas. And it is to be teaching us and showing us and calling us to a place of obedience and repentance and in hope and faith for how to sing this song ourselves. See, Jesus responds to Judas. Judas is, it says there in John 12, that Judas didn't say this because he cared about the poor. Judas was a treasurer, and he took care of the money. He held on to the money. That was the assumption that he was the money, the, the money bag holder. And when he speaks with his tongue, there's deception. It's, it's already highlighted there in John 12 that he wasn't saying it because he had a true concern for the poor. He was speaking about the poor and using the poor for his own selfish gain because he was a, a thief. And in Jesus' amazing way, he contrasts what this woman is doing compared to what Judas is doing by one saying, one, she is focusing on the cross, my death, and you need to be focusing on what I've already commanded you in the word. Because if you go back to Deuteronomy 15 and you look at the law, you have where people who are in the circumstances, first of all, those who are your brothers, who are in the circumstance of being truly poor and needy, and they come to you, you have the command, if you are in a position of being able to do this, you are to lend to them and care for them for six years seven years, letting them go on the seventh year and caring for them abundantly, not just with your resources, but with your life. 
to disciple them, to help them, to train them, to lift them up, and then to give them even beyond that, to sustain them. Deuteronomy 15 teaches those whom God has appointed to deliver people from their plight. To protect them and to care for them all the way up and in through and beyond their healing. Just like David is saying the Lord is doing for him. And I saw there that there is, interestingly enough, a call for us to think about how we serve the poor, how we serve those in need. I am not saying, and I want to be very clear, I am not saying that we need to reinstitute some kind of form of a slave and master system. But I believe that as God has said in Deuteronomy 15, that those particular principles, that if we live by them, in doing the things that Jesus has shown there in John 13, and being servant masters, servant leaders, servant fathers, servant husbands, servant wives, servant brothers and daughters, servant whatever, wherever God has given us the ability to have that strength and capability, we are to perceive and posture ourselves to one another who are in need in that way. Think about that. How many of you, when you see someone who is in need, are willing to say, you know what, I want to help that person. I'm I'm ready to commit myself to them for six to seven years to help them get out of that situation. Now, often we were like, well, you know, what kind of ministry can I donate to? That'd be good. I can do that. Maybe I can sell something of value and I can donate that amount of money and that would help the poor. Then I'm off the hook. That's what Judas was saying. Judas was saying, yeah, we could have, you know, for his own glory and for his own purposes, he's saying, we could have sold that perfume and we could have just given it to the poor. I believe that's where we are in a, as a society today, especially in America, because we're on two far extremes. On one side, we have so many riches, we really have a hard time understanding what it is to be helpless. We are helpless in so many ways. We are slaves in a multitude of ways. I'm not saying that we are removed from the circumstances of hopelessness and, and slavery. It's just defined differently that we don't consider it the right way. And then on the other hand, our way of dealing with things, not just with monetary need in our communities or in our church, we have a way to organize it and structure it where we can do the minimum amount possible and feel like we've been relieved and we're now off the hook. Deuteronomy 15 is a tremendous commitment to those who are in need and who are destitute. 
Why do you think God said to go for that many years? Can you think of any circumstance that has really been truly healing and recovery that was just for a few moments, for a few days, or even a year or two? If we don't start seeing fruit from people that we are trying to help and serve within a few weeks or a few ye- couple of years, then we feel like it's a failed endeavor. God says six years, seven years, full commitment, full discipleship. And there with Judas's words, it indicates where the heart is. And I believe that that is what we're seeing amongst those who are surrounding David. They're saying things to David that are supposed to be words of comfort, supposed to be making their dues to him by coming and visiting him when he is in his suffering. But they're all lies. They're all assuming that he's not going to rise. There is no long-term fruit in his endeavor. How often do we follow up with people or even prayers that we give for people to see how they're doing? How often do we even remember our commitment levels toward helping people or praying for people are so short-lived? We'll pray even good prayers. We'll write even big checks and we'll forget about them in very short periods of time. We're more than happy to be like Judas, to make a quick statement in front of everyone. Let's give to the poor, but we have no idea or even consideration for what the Lord has really called us to do. Jesus is displaying that before the disciples, telling them that as he is calling and is he going to further and mature his church, This is what it's going to have to look like. You're going to have to wash the feet. You're going to have to go for a commitment that is putting yourself in a place of servitude. Because that is what I am doing. You're going to have to be one who is completely dependent and destitute from any hope in of yourself. You're going to have to go to the cross. And as I thought about this more, one of the passages that is very popular and we see a lot when, it, when we consider benevolent ministries and care, a lot of us will remember James 1, 27. And it teaches us there that true religion is visiting the widows and the orphans in their time of suffering. That true religion is visiting those who have no hope that the structures that are there to deliver them, to protect them, to sustain them have broken down. And we are taught by James that true religion is caring for them in that time. But what else has James spent a lot of time talking about? He says further in that same passage, and to keep yourself unstained from the world. 
He prefaces that passage by telling us to be doers of the word and not just hearers. And then he tells us to be slow to speak, quick to listen, interwoven before and after and in the middle of James, we have this continual admonition to watch your mouth (laughs) and how you speak to one another. Because Jesus knows that it is not what is outside that defiles, but what is inside that defiles. It's a constant reminder to us to gauge not just what we're saying, but what we are in our hearts. See, this is why David says at the end of the psalm that the Lord will rescue me because of my integrity is because he is reflecting upon not his integrity fully, but the fact that he trusted the Lord in his promises that it says, blessed be the one who considers the poor because he has submitted himself to care for the poor in his stead. He knows that the Lord's integrity of fulfilling the promises of his care will be there, not just because of what he has done, but because he has shown mercy. And what does it say in James 2? It says that ultimately those who do not show mercy will not receive mercy. And that is why David says, as for me, I am full of sin. I am full of neediness. I am totally dependent upon the Lord for everything. For everything that I have, for every bit of strength that I have in my body, and more importantly, for my soul. And so I think the psalm is very simple, and it's a very simple close for us as we consider this interesting calling for us to wrap all of this up. This particular book where we are being reminded of our need, reminding that Jesus is with us in the middle of our need, for us to consider those around us, to consider every element of people's life where they are helpless and destitute. And there are real intangible ways that that can be accomplished, and there are real intangible instructions in his word on how to be faithful and following after God for those whose hearts are broken in knowing that they are poor and needy. I mentioned in the earlier part of this sermon series that you've got to understand how great it is to be in the category of the poor and the needy. Because it is only there where you will find mercy. It is only there where you will find the blessings that David is speaking about. 
So I encourage you, this congregation, to be thinking about real ways. Now, I'm not saying that when we give donations to different benevolent ministries, that that is not fruitful. There are all kinds of things that we should be postured in, in our, even our finances in this church and your finances in your home, in your time, in your prayers, that should be given to places of immediate need. I'm not saying that if it doesn't have some kind of six to seven year commitment that you shouldn't participate in. I'm just saying that don't rely on that. Look at the temptation that Judas had. Now, we just mentioned Judas just for a second, a little longer. A lot of people, we kind of think of Judas like, what in the world was he doing in this situation? I mean, of course, you know, he just seems like he's just a bad guy. You know, he's a thief. He's, you know, pulling money out of the treasury. Um, He's talking and planning against Jesus. And then he ultimately is a conspirator to the death of Jesus Christ. How did he even get there in the first place? You have to understand from what everything that I have read and everything I can understand, Judas had sincerity in what he was doing and being a disciple of Jesus Christ. He wasn't like he was some kind of trained spy from some outside enemy source. He had a sincerity that was lacking repentance and humility. Some people even say that Judas was conspiring the way he was because he didn't really like the way that Jesus was going with the whole idea of dying on the cross and and the kingdom coming in that way, that he may have been even provoking a circumstance where he really didn't anticipate that Jesus would end up tying, that he was trying to turn around and make Jesus maybe provoke him to take on a more military stance. Now that's way out there and possibly very wrong. I'm not saying that it's the truth, but because when you look at Judas, he's not in a situation where he is some kind of just peripheral person that's always doing bad things. What did Jesus call him? Jesus said, my friend has raised up his hill against me. We need to be careful not to make some characterization of Judas that would be in contrast to the potential possibility that we are very much like Judas. We have an idea of how the ministry of Jesus Christ should go. And we have a quickness to our lips on admonishing people to help the poor in our way. We have the ability to say, look at this group or that group for being wrong. And Jesus says that when we are like that, when we are using our mouth in that way, we are conspiring against the body of Jesus Christ. We are conspirators to the sufferings of our own brothers and sisters in Christ. We should evaluate our hearts. We should evaluate our commitment. And we should evaluate, most of all, our hopelessness in Christ, without Christ, and our need for him, and our full dependency upon him. I've tried to make this as brief as possible, knowing my extended sermons for the last couple of Sundays. 
But I implore you to go and to read all of John 12 and all of John 13. And go and look at Deuteronomy 15. Look for opportunities to see yourself as Judas. Go to James 1 and look for opportunities where you have conspired against the body of Jesus Christ. And then go to Deuteronomy 15. And I beg you, congregation, to do this. This is something I have been thinking about for a long time. And I've asked the Lord's mercy if I'm trying to impose some kind of agenda on my own mind and heart that before you. But go to Deuteronomy 15 and pray that the Lord would show you and show this congregation how we can truly serve the poor and the needy more like that in Deuteronomy 15, where we are discipling people through their deliverance, protecting people, and sticking with them through their healing and beyond. That we would not be complacent and find satisfaction with short-term benevolence that really ultimately just feeds our emotional money bag. But that we would truly be pouring ourselves out as Jesus is instructing to the disciples. I believe that it is only through those things, knowing our need for Jesus and reaching out to others in that way, will there will be any true change. We will just constantly be displaying to the world a lot of Judases. But David says that Jesus prepares the table That Jesus prepares a table before his enemies. Sometimes that enemy is within our own hearts. Sometimes that enemy is within our own congregation. Sometimes that enemy is within the broader evangelical church. As we go to this table... We need to hold on to him knowing that we will starve without him. We need to realize the great weight that's placed upon us that we can only go to this table being just like David and saying we are so full of sin. We are guilty. I guarantee you every single one of us are guilty of the sins of Judas, at least in some measure. We must come to this table like David, repenting of our sins so that we can be those who will be able to reach out and be able to proclaim the integrity of the Lord and how he delivers, protects, and sustains us. Come to the table with me. Jesus calls us. Come to the table with repentance and faith, hoping in his reign. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this very convicting passage, these very convicted, convicting passages. Father, we want to be like Mary, 
who pours ourselves out, everything we have at your feet. The conspirators say that there is no hope. He will not rise. The conspirator says his name will end and not be forevermore. But you said through your son that Mary's name will always be remembered because your son's name will be remembered forevermore. Father, help us to be more like Mary. Help us to be more like your son. Help us to repent like David. Make your church display your glory and your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let us stand and let us praise the Lord and thank him for all his many mercies, for everything that he gives us, our physical strength and every sustenance that we have for every need.